I wanted to ask you about, you told, you told us yesterday about the uh, continuity between the practices of the United States that started, that were tried in the Philippines in the early 20th century and what is today mass surveillance. And you also uh, talked about the fact that uh, this control on population and more generally the, the confrontation between state and population was very rooted in the foundations of the U.S. with uh, the genocide of the Native Americans and, uh, and other events. Uh, I wanted to know if you consider that this mass surveillance is just another tool uh, in this Uh, tool of governmentality, for example, if we use the Foucault words, which doesn't create any difference, only a difference in scale and no breaking uh, of any kind. Well, differences in quantity sometimes become differences in quality. Uh, my impression is it's basically a difference in scale. Uh, so the practices that were uh, developed in detail Uh, to control the Philippine population back in the early 20th century, which were aimed mostly at elites, uh, not so much at the peasantry, they kind of disregarded them, and were very successful in breaking up the nationalist movements and uh, imposing the uh, U.S.-dominated system, which so successful that it remains until today. As I think I mentioned, the Philippines are kind of an outlier in East and Southeast Asia, the one area that hasn't really developed uh, the, uh, and has not uh, plenty of struggles, you know, a lot of brutality. So for example, after the Second World War, the U.S. backed a vicious counterinsurgency operation to crush uh, peasant independent rebellions, but basically the system has sustained itself and it was applied at once at home. Uh, this was the early, this is like 1910, by 1918-1919, a few years later, pretty much the same systems were applied at home in what is in fact the most repressive period of American history, the Woodrow Wilson's Red Scare, which was quite vicious and had a long time impact. And then it continues. Uh, the FBI uh, used the same techniques to try to, again, aim mainly at the political elite to try to ensure that uh, uh, senators, congressional representatives, others would uh, not get out of line because they'd have a ton of information about them and they could use it to uh, slander them, to libel them, to initiate stories and so on. By the 1960s and 70s, it was being directed against the entire population. That's the COINTEL PRO uh, uh, operations, uh, primarily under the Democratic administrations of the 60s and then Nixon when it was finally terminated by the courts, but uh, uh, very similar operations, uh, but in this case uh, directed against uh, uh, the Native American movements, the, uh, the, the New Left, the Black Nationalist movements, the women's movements. And, It was pretty serious. It led as far as uh, literal political assassination, uh, forcing suicides, uh, breaking up groups. Uh, and, uh, that was a massive operation. It's, uh, it's pretty hard to think of it. I mean, outside of, say, East Germany and so on, it's 
hard to think of a comparable operation in a Western society aimed at uh, under a state, and it's the state, it's the national political police, that's what the FBI is, mm -hmm. under executive orders, uh, trying to break up and disrupt uh, popular activism, which was quite a significant force in the 60s and early 70s, and had substantial success. Uh, this uh, now takes it up uh, on a broader scale. But this is the kind of thing you'd expect the system of power to do. The more information they have about people, uh, the better able they are, at least think they are, to uh, control and monitor and undermine them if necessary. So that's also the, the, the you think uh, power can exist. So th there is this idea that uh, information is power, and your activism uh, is very linked to this idea that you have to empower people by providing them accurate information on the world and in the different structures of power. Uh, do you think that the I mean, do you think that secret is necessary to form a power? Do you think that secrecy is valuable? Actually, the United States is an unusually open society. Mm -hmm. uh, we have more access to internal planning records in the United States than any country that I know of. It's by no means perfect, but uh, it's substantial. And when you read through these masses of internal documents, secret documents, as I've done in many cases, one thing is quite striking. Very little has any meaningful relation to any real security issue. Most of it is defending the state against the population. They don't want people to know what they're doing, so it's secret. But there's very little in the secret record that would, be of, would have been of value, let's say, to the Russians or the Chinese or whoever, the Cubans, whoever they thought they were fighting. They usually knew it perfectly well just from what was happening on the ground. Uh, but it does maintain secrecy from the population. And the tacit assumption is, sometimes overt, that people shouldn't know these things. There is, after all, it's worth remembering, a, a leading theme of liberal, progressive, democratic theory, which says that people should not know you find that expressed uh, overtly often in some of the leading figures, so the leading uh, public intellectual of the 20th century in the United States, uh, Walter Lippmann, who was a very distinguished figure. He was a progressive uh, Wilson, uh, Roosevelt, uh, Kennedy-style progressive uh, leading commentator on public affairs. He was also the author of uh, what are called uh, uh, essays in democratic and progressive democratic theory. And when you read them, what he says is, I'll quote, he says, the public are ignorant and meddlesome outsiders. They have to be put in their place. Uh, decisions have to be made by the responsible men, people like us. The people who write this are always among the responsible men. Uh, the, uh, we, and we, the responsible men, have to be protected from the trampling and the roar of the bewildered herd, the ignorant and meddlesome outsiders. Uh, and uh, the, the job of uh, what he called manufacturing consent, we 
I borrowed his term for a book, but his, the job of manufacturing consent is to ensure that the public is marginalized, put in their place in his phrase. They can be spectators, but not participants. They do have a role in a political system. Every couple of years, they're allowed to lend their weight to one or another of the responsible men, and then they should go home and keep quiet. Uh, that's the, and this is quite common. I mean, the founder of modern uh, modern political science, Harold Laswell, one of the leading figures, also a kind of a, progr a progressive, you know, by U.S. standards, a leftist progressive. Uh, he said we should not be led misled by democratic dogmatisms about uh, people being the best judges of their own interests. They're not. They're too stupid, they're too ignorant. It would be unfair to allow them to make decisions, kind of like letting a three-year-old run into the street. You know, they're not capable. So for their own benefit, uh, we should control and uh, uh, control them, limit what they do, uh, keep them to the status of uh, uh, observer, spectators of what happens in the political arena. And this is pretty much the way things work. So if you look at uh, you know, academic political science in the United States, one of the major topics that it studies, and studies very well, is the relation between public attitudes and public policy. It's a straightforward inquiry. Public policy, you see it. Uh, public attitudes are uh, available from extensive polling. Polling isn't perfect, but it's pretty good and pretty reliable, and often polls are done quite sensibly. And there's a massive information about public attitudes and public policy, and there are results uh, in the major you know, kind of gold standard works of political science. Basic result is that about 70% of the population, lower 70% on the income scale, is literally disenfranchised. Their attitudes have absolutely no effect on policy. Their representatives pay no attention to them, literally. So whatever they think is disregarded. As you move up the scale, you start getting a little more influence. That is more relation between attitudes and policy. And when you get to the very top, which is a fraction of 1%, they're basically making policy. So they get what they want. Uh, you know, this little fuzziness around the edges. But that's the basic picture. Uh, just recently, there was a study by, uh, released by Princeton University, which got a little publicity. Two leading political scientists who've worked on these things for years investigated, I think, about 1,700 major public policy decisions to investigate who had influence. Uh, same result. Uh, basically, the public was irrelevant, uh, almost all of it. And uh, when you get to the business world, um, you know, extreme wealth and so on, they have enormous influence. Actually, creation of policy, because they usually staff the executive, either they or their representatives. Somebody like, say, Henry Kissinger, representative of the corporate system, uh, but uh, state corporate system. But, uh, but this is the way it works, and that's uh, considered appropriate in
progressive democratic theory uh, for the for the for the good of the population, all which is out of benevolence. Mm -hmm. You cannot let these ignorant and meddlesome outsiders that make uh, bad decisions be terrible. When you look at the secrecy system, that's what a lot of it is about. I'd say the overwhelming majority keeping the ignorant and meddlesome outsiders in the dark. It's not their business. Because you think that, for example, what happened with Snowden, that he, he, he leaked all these documents, you think that the fact that this, if this information reaches uh, the masses, which is not sure also, we don't know if, if they're, they're really aware of the full extent and of the political implications, you think it could empower them, or do you think they're anyway marginalized by the system and it would be maybe the upper classes that, could, that need also this information? Well, I think the passionate uh, attack on Snowden, you know, the, as soon as this started, there's high-level claims that we're going to hunt him to the end of the world and we'll catch him wherever he is and we'll punish him. I mean, it shows that they're really afraid. Now, it could be that the fear is paranoia. So, for example, if uh, at the highest level, say, you know, the White House and so on, if they had simply disregarded him, it might have just disappeared, uh, possible. So their own paranoia may be feeding the system, uh, their own demise in a sense. But it does reflect the attitudes. Uh, how much effect it can have, well, we're not sure. Uh, so for example, there were effects. Uh, in Brazil, for example, withdrew uh, the, a presidential visit didn't quite break relations, but certainly harmed them. And remember, a lot of these Snowden revelations uh, are not just about surveillance of people. They're also about uh, support for corporate efforts to undermine business in other countries. So spying on you know, the negotiators and uh, energy deals to make sure that American corporations uh, have a head up on it and so on. Uh, now, you know, big corporations in other countries don't like that, just like America doesn't like the fact that somebody's reading her email, you know. But uh, a, a powerful people and powerful institutions are being harmed sufficiently so that there was a reaction. Uh, Congress did start to get concerned when it turned out that uh, the, uh, the Senate committees responsible for this were being spied on. Uh, I should say there's absolutely nothing new about this. So for example, you go back to the foundation of the United Nations. It was, uh, there was a conference in San Francisco, I think it was 1947, which established the United Nations. Well, it turned out pretty soon that uh, they discovered that the FBI had been bugging uh, the offices of the foreign delegations so that American negotiators could have a step up on trying to get what they wanted. Uh, you know, it, it's a huge fuss made when the Russians do this to the American embassy, of course, but it's done all the time. At this geopolitical scale, I had a question, uh, coming back to what you said about Philippines and the fact that uh, what, the, the, the strategy put in place by the U.S. has still effects more than 100 years later. How, how can we explain that Latin America has been one of the strongest, uh, has had one of the strongest reactions to all these 
mass surveillance, whereas we know that the U.S. has always has a very actually it's a very it's a very significant phenomenon, really historic significance. Uh, for 500 years, the Latin America had been pretty much in the hands of foreign powers and uh, uh, elite, mostly white elites, tiny elites inside Latin America who accumulated enormous wealth and huge, horrendous poverty and basically rich societies, and always with, uh, under, under the hands of the imperial powers. Uh, for a long time it was England, and last century or so it's the United States. Uh, Latin America was so taken for granted in U.S. planning that they really hardly even had plans for it. Uh, so there were some. So, for example, in 1945, when the U.S. was beginning the organization of the world at the end of the Second World War, the U.S. did call a hemispheric conference uh, in Mexico, uh, and the Latin American states came, and the United States imposed, at that point the U.S. could actually impose what it wanted, imposed what was called an economic charter for the Americas, which banned economic nationalism in all its forms. Uh, the Latin American countries had to follow, had to be completely open societies, which of course in, in fact meant open to U.S. penetration and control. It wasn't reciprocal. Uh, incidentally, the U.S. itself did not accept these principles. On the contrary, it had a high level of economic nationalism. Uh, that's why you have your computer and you're using the internet and so on, all largely state sector actions. And this was, they were concerned at the time with what the State Department called uh, the new nationalism in Latin America, which is driven by the idea that the people of the country ought to be the beneficiaries of their resources. Now we have to smash this down. No new nationalism. Uh, it's foreign investors who are the beneficiaries, not the people of the country. It was pretty explicit. And at that point, you could just legislate it, and they did what they were told. And so it continued, and not without uh, violence. Uh, so for example, in the post-Stalin period, uh, violence and repression in the American U.S. dependencies in Latin America was much worse than Eastern Europe, much worse. See an indication of it up there, the uh, depiction of the murder of the uh, Archbishop and uh, El Salvador, and, mm -hmm. and ten years later the murder of uh, six leading Latin American intellectuals uh, by forces pretty much armed and trained by the United States. Uh, East Europe was bad enough, but things like that didn't happen. And there were vicious neo-Nazi dictatorships installed and massive torture and so on. That was Latin America until about 10 or 15 years ago. And since then, there's been a sharp turn. Partly it was the effect of the neoliberal policies of the 1980s and 90s. The Latin America followed the rules, and it was smashed. The rules are very destructive. Mm -hmm. uh, countries that didn't follow the rules, like South Korea and Taiwan and so on, they did fine. Uh, but Latin America observed them, and it was a very harsh couple of decades, and there was a reaction. There was also finally a reaction to the 
US-backed or sometimes US-imposed dictatorships. And, uh, it, and for a variety of reasons in the last roughly decade, you know, 20 years maybe, the Latin America has for the first time in its history moved towards, uh, first of all, integration, some degree of integration of the countries. They were very separate from one another and the degree of independence. And it's pretty remarkable uh, what you describe here and the NSA is one example, but there are many others. One of the most striking examples uh, had to do with the uh, CIA torture programs. The worst torture programs by far were what was called the extraordinary rendition. Mm -hmm. That's a program where you take somebody you you have, you're interested in, you suspect him or you think he has information, you send him to your favorite dictatorship, uh, Assad in Syria, and Mubarak in Egypt, uh, Gaddafi in Libya, and make sure that he's tortured uh, sufficiently so that he comes out with something. And then, you know, maybe have some information, maybe not. Uh, there was a study recently, about a year ago, of the countries that participated in extraordinary rendition. Most of Europe, England, Sweden, all participated, probably Italy, I don't remember. Uh, the Middle East, of course, because that's where you sent them to be tortured. And most of the rest of the world. One exception, no participation from Latin America, which is doubly significant. First of all, because Latin America used to be the backyard, they did what they were told. Secondly, because during the period of U.S. control, Latin America was one of the world's centers of torture. Now they refuse to participate in U.S.-run torture. It's pretty significant. Even Colombia? Even Colombia. You take a look at the, there are now hemispheric, hemispheric conferences used to be, uh, the U.S. gave the orders and everybody followed them. Mm -hmm. Uh, the latest ones, the U.S. and Canada are isolated. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Latin America against the U.S. and Canada. Uh, and there's already organizations formed, CELAC, which uh, exclude North America, mm -hmm. just the Latin American, Caribbean countries. Uh, that's a remarkable change. And uh, the U.S. has simply lost control of the region. And it's interesting for a European because, on the contrary, I'm, I mean, it's maybe a perception that we see Europe on like laying down every, every time, getting yeah. getting more. Uh, Europe is becoming Latin Europe. Americanized. It's very. Yeah. It, it was pretty dramatic with the case of the Morales Plain. This is Bolivia, mm -hmm. poorest country in, in the hemisphere outside of Haiti, uh, a country with an indigenous majority. Mm -hmm. The president went to Russia, talked to Snowden, flew back. The European countries are so terrified of the United States that they wouldn't let them cross their airspace. Um, they're cowering in terror of the Europeans because the master might be angry at them. Meanwhile, Latin America, the poorest country in South America, is defying the United States. It's very troubling, also. It should tell Europeans something yes. about their cowardice. That's, and yeah, especially since we come from. I mean, there was a period, and during the because you can understand that in the Cold War, there there could be a, 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 like a legitimizing. I mean, it could legitimize the the influence of the U.S. But it's. 
for example, in France, it's especially since the end of the Cold War that there's been this alignment, like they enter NATO without, and it's difficult to understand what happened actually. What what was the situation? First of all, during the Cold War, uh, remember that part of the reason for NATO, significant part, was to keep Europe under control. Mm. Uh, the uh, uh, as long as you had NATO, Europe depended on the United States, and efforts to move in an independent direction, which did exist, De Gaulle, uh, Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik, uh, others were very much feared in the United States. Now, there was fear of what was called a third force. You know, Russia, the United States, and Europe had become a third independent force, which it could have. Europe's population is bigger than the United States, and advanced industrial societies, uh, in many ways more advanced than the United States. Uh, if, they, if Europe wanted to, it could become an independent force, and the U.S. didn't want that. And that's, I think, a large part of the reason why NATO remains and is even expanding, though there's no Russian threat. Um, they can try to concoct one, but it's ludicrous. Uh, it's uh, uh, you know, partly to just keep Europe under control. So yes, there was you know, pressure to, you could imagine uh, the effectiveness of propaganda about legitimizing U.S. influence, but if you look into it, it's pretty shaky. But what's happened since? I'm going to say take France. Uh, France is quite interesting. Uh, until the 1970s, the French intellectuals were the last Stalinists in the world. Fanatic Stalinists and Maoists. I mean, nobody in the world, in the West, believed any of this, but they were still mouthing all the slogans, I remember. Giving talks in France, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, talking to the leading French intellectuals about the genius Mao and so on and so forth. In the mid 70s, this radically changed. Uh, as far as I can tell, it changed. The, the event that changed it was probably Solzhenitsyn's Gulag. Uh, that was translated into French, everybody read it. And since the French intellectuals have to be in the lead in the world, because after all it's France, uh, they suddenly presented themselves as the first people in the world who understood the evils of Stalinism. And these great intellectuals were writing articles uh, with great uh, you know, self-praise about things that I knew when I was 10 years old, because you know, everybody knew them. Uh, and, uh, but there, I mean, there were obviously f factors behind it. But there was a shift among the intellectual classes from a weird form of Stalinism, third worldism, Maoism, and so on. Not everyone, of course, but you know, substantial part, to becoming the most reactionary uh, sector of the Western intellectuals. And of course, praising themselves for their magnificence and discovering what everybody always knew. You know, mm -hmm. In fact, it's kind of comical when you look at the productions, uh, and it continues like that. It's a very strange, this kind of a strain of hysteria in the culture, which is interesting to investigate. I think a lot of the uh, postmodern, sometimes say excesses, uh, grow out of that. But uh, and you had similar things happening in the other countries. Uh, 
what the reasons are, well, it'll be interesting to investigate, but the tendencies are clear. I, I wanted to, to ask you about, uh, coming back to this question of, uh, we talked yesterday also about the way, I mean, can we resist legally, or do we have to resist legally, or, or, or and there is a question, for example, secret services uh, escape by nature to the public scrutiny, and in, to, in a way, is it possible to control them like through democratic means? I mean, do the there secret is, services? Yes, there is like a contradiction between the yeah. democracy and, and... It should be controlled. Mm -hmm. And not just the secret services, but uh, things like, say, Gladio, uh, which is still largely secret. Mm -hmm. I mean, some bits and pieces of it have come out. It did appear to be involved in the neo-fascist uh, terror in Italy in, in the 70s and so on, probably other things. But there's not much research. Daniel Ganser in Switzerland is one of the few researchers. But that doesn't, should be a publicly exposed and under public control, uh, and the same with the Secret Services. Uh, in the United States, after the NSA exposures, there were some measures passed in Congress to limit or restrict uh, the right of the executive to, say, spy on uh, uh, Americans, but very limited. Uh, but that's really a question of public pressure. If there's enough, it can be eliminated. But you still believe that, in a broader way, I mean, because we are we're in, a, in an era in which the state is a universal form, you st did you ever question the fact that we needed a state as a... A state altogether? Yes, like, or, or, or at the national, or just at the national level, I think... Uh, all my life, that's why mm -hmm. since uh, childhood I've been very much attracted by anarchist ideas. I, uh, the, na the nation state is not uh, some kind of universal property. Mm -hmm. It's a special construction, mainly in Europe, spread over the world with European imperialism and settlement. Uh, and it's uh, in many ways a very destructive system. So take, uh, take the Middle East, which is falling apart mm -hmm. and raging chaos. Well, largely this is uh, a long-term effect of the imposition of a nation-state system by the European imperial powers, mostly England and France, mm -hmm. uh, uh, for their own interest, not for the interest of the people. So take, say, Iraq. Mm -hmm. Iraq was patched together by the British uh, in, after the Second World War, First World War, when they were kind of parceling out the former Ottoman Empire. It was put together in such a way as to, the boundaries were drawn by Britain, mm -hmm. to ensure that England, not Turkey, would have control of the uh, oil fields uh, near the Turkish border. And uh, Kuwait was established as a British-run principality, primarily in order to bar Iraq's free access uh, to the sea. So mechanism of control. And that put together uh, Shiites, uh, Sunnis, Kurds, uh, other minorities, Turkmen, uh, who weren't particularly hostile, but had basically not, not much to do with each other. This is done for imperial interest. The uh, same was true. The French took Syria and Lebanon, did the same thing. The British took Palestine, 
for geostrategic reasons primarily. It was kind of like a cover of uh, the Bible said this and that. But, uh, and uh, uh, the whole reason is in, in turmoil. And if you look around, take say, look at Africa. There's, there's violence everywhere. Almost all of it, when you look at it, has to do with the nation-state systems that were imposed by the European powers for their own interests, uh, drawing lines that uh, broke uh, tribes in half, let's say, uh, and putting people together who were hostile. You know. yeah. Or take, say, uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, the British, during the days when they ruled India, uh, drew a line, the Durand line, for their interests. That was going to be British India separate from the rest. The Durand line ha happens, it now separates Pakistan from Afghanistan. It cuts right through the Pashtun territories, right through. Some of them are in Pakistan, some are in Afghanistan. Uh, when a tribesman uh, say goes from Pakistan to Afghanistan to you know, visit relatives, mm -hmm. Uh, we can uh, call it a terrorist attack and send drones to kill them. But from their point of view, it's uh, that's their country. Uh, imperial powers broke it in half. In fact, the same is true of the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, the U.S. conquered about half of Mexico in a brutal war of aggression in the mid-19th century. Uh, the border was pretty artificial. The same people lived on both sides. It was a very permeable border. Uh, all kinds of developments. But uh, it wasn't until pretty recently, late 80s and 1990s, that the border started to get militarized. And the militarization of the border, in fact, uh, took a big step forward when NAFTA was enacted. 1994, when Clinton rammed through NAFTA, over public opposition. Mm -hmm. uh, he also started militarizing the border uh, because uh, planners could easily understand that NAFTA is going to create uh, a huge number of refugees in Mexico. The Mexican campesinos can be quite efficient, but they can't compete with uh, highly subsidized U.S. agribusiness. And uh, the same is true more generally. So you're going to get a flow of refugees. You have to militarize the border. No big issue, people crossing the border, uh, shoot them, send them back, and so on. Uh, and this is all over the world. So there's nothing natural about the nation-state system. I mean, you can see how unnatural it is by looking at European history. The centuries during which this system was imposed uh, were the most, some of the most savage centuries in human history. I mean, the Thirty Years' War, and maybe a third of the population of Germany was slaughtered. Uh, this is all part of imposing nation-state systems. And finally, in 1945, Europeans did recognize that the next time they play their favorite game of slaughtering each other, it's going to be the end. Uh, so Europe did finally move towards some kind of integration which began to somewhat erode the, uh, the nation-state uh, borders, which are generally pretty artificial. 
And I, I think that's a positive direction should take place elsewhere in the world. But at the same time, it, it uh, creates a even br uh, br uh, more important distance between the people, of course, because your, your, your thoughts are always about this relationship of power between power, established power and, and society. And for example, we can see in Europe how the distancing between both, uh, between both has created uh, uh, even more difficulties to grasp politics for the, for the, for the society. Because other developments are taking place. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that's happening in the more integrated Europe is a very sharp attack on popular democracy. Mm -hmm. Decisions are being made in Brussels mm -hmm. uh, by the, you know, the bureaucrats and uh, the Bundesbank and are imposed on the countries. When uh, Monti was elected in Italy, the population had almost nothing to do with him, came from Brussels. But when the Greek uh, Prime Minister, Papandreou, had the effrontery to suggest that, there, that you might ask the population, do they want the palace policies? There was fury all over Europe. How dare you ask the population? This is decided by the responsible men in Brussels. You know? And uh, I mean, even the Wall Street Journal had an article uh, pointing out that no matter what political party took power in, in Europe, right to left, they always followed the same policy. Uh, because they're, com they're not coming from the country. So that's another tendency. Uh, things don't happen just mechanically. There's a lot of things going on. because in the elite, so in the best universities, there is quite uh, a debate, in particular, less with Snowden, which who has quite a, a, an accepted figure, he's an accepted figure, like he's really well considered in general, more about people like Assange, which there's a lot of controversy about the, the, maybe if, the, if their action is good, if they can be supported or not, there was a lot of, of debates and doubts. But I, 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 what kinds of criticisms come up? They, they, they're, they're very skeptical about the reasons that, that uh, it, it entered this, this shadow into this alias. And for example, he, they, they, I mean, it's not, uh, yeah, they, they, for example, they consider that the, what they do, La raison d'état, which is called La raison d'état in French, can, can justify the fact that it's so in the in the but really in the narrow very elitist elitist and the, the further you go into society deeper in the in the country and the more uh, admired they are without uh, compromise. I'm asking because just small experiment with my own grandchildren and friends who are in their twenties. They didn't seem to care. They said, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but we put anything everything on Facebook anyway. So what do we care? It's about that, you know, what is the, the discussion, how do you know, because how do we arrive on that, you know, how do we arrive in this kind of, you know, acceptance of the society, of all the control that any of us now know that we... Yeah, it's the uh, sort of teenage, 20-ish 
society is so exhibitionist that they just don't seem to care if anyone knows everything they're doing. Yeah, there is there is also a, a distinction between between the fact so many many young people in Norway even when they're not politicized and they treat them as heroes, but it doesn't provoke any kind of mobilization. In reaction. Yeah, it, it just stays as a perception and. Uh, I mean, were people that you know uh, surprised by the what was revealed? Yes, they were. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it, the, the the discourse of people like Assange before was seen as. And do they follow WikiLeaks? Yes, yes, there is a quite you know, there is knowledge about about this, but they, it was considered as a bit paranoid that all these dispositions that can can be attributed to anti-system discourse, but. Uh, that was, I think that's, I don't know what you think about it, but I think that's why Snowden's revelations were so important because it revealed that not, it legitimized their discourse, the discourse of those who were warning about uh, Echelon, about the Smart Survey, and something to something. They didn't know the why did you sign the? I mean, I, I, I saw that you signed a, a few weeks ago a manifest, I mean, an appeal for Snowden to support Snowden. Why did you decide to enter into this? Uh, uh, started right away, mm-hmm. immediately. And I thought what he was doing was extremely important. I was quite vocal about it. And how, how did you, I mean, do you see it as an American, a problem of, hegemon, of American hegemony or a more global problem? To some extent or other, every government does it. Yeah. So, for example, some of the interesting Snowden revelations had to do with England. It turned out that in England, the government was requesting the United States to use its advanced technology to spy on British citizens. Mm-hmm. I mean, any system of power is going to want to have total information about its enemies, and the domestic population is one of the main enemies. Uh, this goes way back. I don't know if you've studied the history, but uh, if you haven't, uh, a major book to look at is uh, Albert McCoy's. Have you seen that? Yes. Study of the Philippines. Yes. I mean, the United States pioneered all of these things a hundred years ago, uh, when after the U.S. conquered the Philippines, uh, killed a couple hundred thousand people, but as a pacifier post, and uh, they developed using the highest technology of the day, not now, but they uh, tried to gather massive information uh, about the Philippine elites, basically. They didn't have the technology to go beyond that. And uh, tried to, they recognized that if they knew enough information about them, they could use it to undermine the organization, to uh, discredit people, to uh, conflicts among people and basically break up the independent nationalist movements and it was quite successful. It's so successful that if you take a look at East Asia today, Southeast and East Asia, there's a kind of famous Asian miracle with one exception, the Philippines, which is not participating. It's been under U.S. control for a century. And it uh, remains a dependent third world society. Uh, has never, and furthermore, in a pretty astonishing achievement, 
so indoctrinated that they tend to support the U.S. and its crimes beyond other people, even though they are the main victims. That's a real achievement. And uh, it's now over 100 years, and, and as McCoy discusses, uh, as soon as these methods were developed for the Philippines, they were immediately transferred back home. Uh, so Woodrow Wilson used the same techniques in uh, the Red Scare, you know, the big repression in the post-war, post-World War I period, and then it picked up by the FBI, and it sort of goes on from there. The same happened in England. A system of power is very much afraid of their own populations, and with good reason, uh, and gaining information and using it to control people in front of the doing, discredit them, undermine them, that sort of standard technique. That, that's an interesting, that's a question I wanted to ask. Incidentally, if you've read the reports in the last couple of days mm -hmm. about these uh, 42 Israeli intelligence agents, mm -hmm. you saw that? Yeah. yeah. Take a look at what they're describing. The work that they were doing is exactly what McCoy was describing in the Philippines a hundred years ago. Trying to, of course, they can now cover everybody, not just their leads. So find out what everyone in the occupied territories is doing. And find out if uh, this person is having a homosexual um, love affair. Then you can force him to become a collaborator. Or you can discredit an activist in the community and so on and so forth. Same thing, more sophisticated. And how do you explain that? I mean, so the U.S. has started to master this public propaganda and years ago. 100 years ago and have developed this thing. And now they're adding to that this mass surveillance mechanism. Yeah. And now they have new technology. Yeah, but and any technology that's come along is going to use it. Mm -hmm. and, and it's strengthening it. And at the same time, we can see someone like Edward Snowden, for example, that comes out alone, denouncing dangerous these issues. I mean, in a way, McCoy is dangerous too, but he's a little obscure that they don't go after him. It's, uh, you know, he's a major figure in scholarship, but you know. But I, the, the question would be how, how, I mean, how do you, how can it be understood that someone as Snowden could counter these these massive these two massive tools? That are joining together and counter the, uh, the the discourse, the public, the state discourse. Uh, notice that he's paying quite a cost. Yeah, of course. Uh, he, if he, well, you remember maybe it was a year ago or so, I believe, when Evo Morales flew uh, to yeah. Russia to see him. The European countries are so frightened of the United States. I mean, European cowardice is unbelievable. So frightened that countries like, say, France uh, wouldn't allow the plane to cross their airspace for fear that the United States might be angry at them. Uh, when the plane was finally forced to land in Austria, uh, the Austrian police sent their police in. And this is a presidential plane, a gross violation of every imaginable diplomatic uh, principle, but nobody complained uh, because they're just terrified of the United States. But at the same time, you can see that the discourse of Snowden, is the, the discourse of Snowden, the general, the, the denunciation of this method, is very pervasive and has, and the counter discourse of the state doesn't seem to be to be working in the end. How can you explain that an individual, as you said, it, to some extent is working? Mm -hmm. People uh, claim that there's an mm -hmm. testifies it. Mm -hmm. It's this 
question, for example, in Israel, maybe 20 years ago, it was possible to have a public debate about the quality of the and 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 what can what brings that change? How can the uh, Thank you. 
I was not. And nothing ever happened to anything in the atmosphere. But the, it wasn't the clusters I was on. It was because people like you know, the head of IBM were on that team. George Bundy was on that team. How can you call important people bad names in private? Uh, they broke into, they had a bunch of crooks who broke into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. Okay, that's a crime. But it was a major crime. Take a look at what Nixon was doing at that time. Um, there were major crimes, but they didn't figure in Watergate. So right at the time that Watergate was exposed, the very same time, something else was exposed. The COINTELPRO. This is a, a, a program by the National Political Police, the FBI, through four administrators, began uh, with Eisenhower, then through Kennedy and Johnson, who was still going on under, under Nixon. It was a program that began by a subversive attack on the Communist Party that spread to the Puerto Rican independence movement, to the Native American movement, pretty soon to the New Left, the women's movement. And it was a program just of the kind we're talking about, uh, using every technique possible to undermine and discredit and destroy dissent. And it was pretty serious. Uh, one of the main targets was black nationalists, and they were simply massacred. Uh, right at the time, one of the worst cases was, which was exposed right with Watergate, was the murder of a black act organizer, Fred Hampton, in Chicago by the Chicago police uh, in a typical Gestapo raid, literally. Uh, the police attacked at four, four o'clock in the morning. Murdered him in bed. He was probably drugged. Murdered somebody else who was with him. Uh, this was all set up by the FBI. And the FBI had tried to get some other black group to kill him. They wouldn't do it, so they set it up with the police. That's a Gestapo-style assassination of somebody who's organizing in the black community. I mean, that single event is incomparably worse than the whole war against story. Yeah, okay, so they pick, if they want, they pick up. 
some aim at to obtain of the best price? Or, and do you think this, because there is a trend in, in, in this resistance movement, if it's pathetic or not, to gain power in order to obtain this result? But that's a mistake, because if they gain power, they're going to lose anything. So you think what they ought to be trying to do is to diffuse power, so nobody has power. So you think you can stay outside the power work and still I think you in fact that's been done. Mm-hmm. I mean the transition from say kings to parliamentary democracy is an important step. It doesn't eliminate power, but it's uh, it, 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 uh, parliamentary say the government of the United States has much less power than a king would have had. But is this power coming to the people back or to yeah, corporations? Control. There are popular controls over what the government can do. They're constrained. And they work. Maybe not well, but they work. So take, say, the Vietnam War. Uh, take a look at the 19, what happened through the 1960s. Uh, there was, at the beginning, there was almost no opposition. I mean, it was shocking. But finally, by the late 60s, position developed. At that point, the Johnson administration uh, began to run into economic problems. The problem was that they had to fight what was called the guns and butter war. They had to keep the population quiet and controlled. Because there was so much opposition to the war that you had to kind of pacify people pacify. Uh, one result of that is they could never call a national mobilization. But during the Second World War, where people were committed to the war, there was a national mobilization. So people were willing to accept uh, uh, wage controls, you know, rationing uh, drive to meet meat, and so on and so forth, because they wanted to win the war. If Johnson had been able to call a national mobilization, the Vietnam would have been snapped, totally crushed. I mean, that would have destroyed any of us. It would have been crushed. He couldn't do it. Too much opposition. The result was what was called stagflation, a combination of stagnation and inflation. The business world didn't like that. And in fact, by 1968, after the Tet Offensive, which indicated the war was going to go on for a long time, where the business classes turned against the war and were influential in uh, forcing Johnson and later Nixon into some kind of negotiation. Uh, that's uh, the way they power systems like to look at it, they say, well, you know, business is so benevolent, they decide to do this, and that's not what happened. It began to harm their interests, and the reason it harmed their interests is because of popular opposition, and actually it goes beyond that. Take a look at the Pentagon Papers, which is quite interesting. One, one of the most interesting parts is the very end, where uh, the Pentagon Papers ends in mid-1968, history, internal history. That's after the Tet Offensive. The Tet Offensive was a remarkable event. Among other things, the Beta Korea War was going to go on for a long time. Uh, Johnson, President, had wanted to send more troops to Vietnam. The, the top military was opposed. Uh, what they said is, if we do that, we're going to have domestic problems. We're going to need those troops for population control in the United States. There's going to be an uprising of young people and women and minorities and others and that will need them for civil control for the long term. Uh, that's an indicator. And in fact, it's effective. 
It was what happened to the cross of the Could have been a lot worse. Well, in fact, if you look back, say, at Nazi Germany, totalitarian states, you find pretty much the same thing. Somebody, they haven't done it, read the, the memoir of Albert Schreer. He's the, the Nazi economic czar. Yeah, one second. Uh, his memoirs are kind of interesting. Uh, what he says is probably accurate. He says that the military effort was impeded by the fact that the population couldn't, it wasn't really that too much committed to the war. So we had to carry out uh, a butter war. We had to pacify them. And that took resources away from the war. And what he claims is that it, I think he said that it maybe lost a year or something. Exactly. If he's right, that was the difference between victory and defeat. Germany was technologically much more advanced than the West. I mean, jet planes, you know, rockets, all sorts of things. Uh, but they were kind of overwhelmed by sheer mass, much of the Russians. But they had more time, you know, maybe a little more. Well, that's a popular opposition in a totalitarian state. Um, population just can't be totally disregarded. And uh, there are little achievements, like uh, a lot of people, not human rights aren't perfect by any means, but they really advance over the centuries. Do you think that the, the, these, uh, you know, these uh, individual, you know, uh, action of the Snowden and uh, assault, not individual, the community, that will change something in the future in terms of uh, other things or the, 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 the they did what they could. From now on, it's up to the people who've got the information, thanks to their courageous actions. If you decide to do nothing, nothing will change. In the States, nothing changed, you think, until now? Not much. I mean, some has. So, for example, uh, by now there are some constraints on uh, government action. Not much, but some. And there could be more. But that's up to the up to people like us, same in France, same in Italy, same anywhere else. I mean, there, there are the governments who are doing the same things, just not on this scale. Fifty years ago, you were a public enemy. Today, you were a public enemy fifty years ago. Today, Snowden is a moderate. Even a public enemy from the inside, so it's even worse. Do you think there will be still another one in fifty years? Do you think it's a permanent thing? That's it. That's up to us. But you think that there can be a society in which we will not have There can be freer societies. In fact, in an earlier period, maybe Snowden would have just been assassinated. Yeah, yeah. that's the question I wanted to ask. Well, I think that's strange. But they didn't send uh, and if he got, suppose he got, the United States is going to try to catch him in every possible way. If they do, they're not going to assassinate him and make him a prison forever. For, a, for example. Hmm? For an example. An example, but mostly out of revenge. Yeah. A lot of it is just plain revenge. I mean, you can tell with what happened with, say, Dan Ellsbury. Uh, they tried to convict him, uh, but the trial fell apart. And incidentally, it fell apart because of Nixon's criminality. Okay, so as myself, I was testifying at the trial uh, when the judge 
question is, is I mean, because it's uh, it's something that is under in your in your work, which is the question of legality or resistance to legality, or I mean, can, is it legitimate to go up, not just on the Snowden as a control act, but now in order to change the system, do we have to respect the freedom of legality that has been imposed? Or,